So, Brad, what'd you think of Antichrist? Well, as far as movies with CGI talking foxes go, it's almost as good as Dora in the Lost City of Gold. I don't want to see an ordinary film. I want to see something extraordinary. Your sacrifice completes my sanctuary of 1,000 testicles. You ever feel as if your mind had started to erode? Right now. Let's rock indeed. Mm -hmm. Welcome to 1,000 Wives of Weird, a podcast that is a celebration of everything weird, mostly movies. I'm Brad Hefner, and with me as always is... Billy Martell. And this week, we were originally going to have our first guest on, my dear friend Spring Moore. It's becoming a, a common refrain with us at this point. Yes. She was not feeling well. Her voice was a little bit raspy. She wanted mm -hmm. to sound her best. Let's just start every episode uh, from here on in, like like the Jimmy Kimmel Jimmy Kimmel, show. Matt Damon well, bit. Well, like the Jimmy Kimmel, Matt Damon bit. At the beginning of every episode, we'll just have a much an even more ridiculous guest that we almost had. <laughs> Today, we almost had Tom Hanks on to talk about porn dogs, uh, and he was not available. Lars von Trier's is here, but we just don't want to let him inside. <laughs> He's just outside, like, scratching at the window like a vampire from Salem's Lot. Please, I need to tell you that women are bad. So, uh, but originally we were going to watch the uh, early 90s Tom Hanks odd comedy Joe versus the Volcano. Yes. And we ended up watching Lars von Trier's <laughs> Antichrist. How did we get here? <laughs> it was a sudden juke, and I had just seen this. It was like... Yeah. Well, it's already vetted. Right. And I like to see a movie at least once before I have to take notes, because I I hate the movie during the note-taking process. The note-taking process is um, not good. So, it's not fun. Uh, we went with this, and I wish we had a little bit more time to maybe delve into other people's interpretations of this movie. There is some stuff in this movie that like genuinely bears further research that we have not had time to yes. do. Um, yes. Uh, and we apologize for that. So, I'm also running on very little sleep. So, and this is going to be a fun episode. We don't talk about the episode. We don't talk about the movie a lot prior, uh, we, before we, we start recording. We try and keep things fresh. But I'm getting the vibe that neither of us are the biggest fans of Antichrist. I, I think that's fair to say. We'll give you a synopsis of Antichrist. Mm -hmm. A man and woman lose their young child. Yeah. And the woman's grief is so severe that her therapist's husband takes her to their cabin in the woods to try to help her out. Try and help her out with exposure therapy. Yes. And shenanigans ensue. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's... Much like Deerskin, this is an art house comedy. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just in case anyone was going to take that seriously. Because it's very early in the episode. If you have not heard of Antichrist, this is not funny. I yeah. mean, not intentionally. <laughs> no. I... There are some scenes where both of us... Yeah. I think we're very amused, but yeah. no, this is not an intentional comedy. Do not watch this for yucks. So <laughs> just a, a couple trigger warnings before we get into recommendations. Oh my God, yes. This is one of the more extreme things we've watched. Uh, just a few scenes. Like it's, I was afraid of this movie for the longest time. I was like, yes. oh my God, it's going to be so extreme. And it ended up not really phasing me much. I think what happened with both of us is that we avoided watching this movie for too long. Yeah. And we ended up watching a bunch of other stuff in the meantime that, as we talk about on the show, moved our weirdness goalpost. True. So I think if a pre-imprint Billy would have had a different reaction oh, sure. to this movie than post-imprint Billy has had. Yes. But I, because I have seen imprint... 
um, uh, nothing can hurt. I'm sure something can. And I knew that. That's why I, uh, yeah. I was like, I didn't think this was going to be. I was worried a little bit because there are, there are two scenes in particular. There's one scene. Or two partic- shots. There's one scene in particular that. There's plenty about this movie that made me upset. Yes. But it did not make me upset like, like, like it made me upset yeah. like, oh, come on. Like that kind of upset. Gotcha. And there was one scene where I was like, ah, but like, uh, yeah, that's just a human nature, I think. But there are, there are brief scenes of self-mutilation. Uh, there's like a lot of self mutilation. There's a lot of sex, including a shot of what appears to be unsimulated sex. There is actual unsimulated sex and unsimulated masturbation in this movie as well. Yes. Um, so, and if, also very realistically simulated masturbation. Yes. Uh, so if those things understandably are not your bag, yeah. uh, pass on antichrist. If you were upset by the saw movies, don't even come within five yards of this movie. Yeah. This movie will fuck you up. But let's, let's talk about whether people should even watch antichrist. Billy, would you recommend antichrist? I don't think I can. Okay. Now I put off, I was still scared of this movie and I think I like, I, I, I interpreted it as laziness at the time, but looking back on it, I think I psychologically was, like, coming up with ways to not watch Antichrist leading up to... Gotcha. Uh, so I actually just watched it very recently before this podcast. Antichrist, to me, is an art house film that is... I like to think of art house films as being films made by filmmakers that they would like to see and that they don't necessarily care if other people see it. Mm -hmm. Now, Antichrist comes across to me as very much that film, but I think that I finally found my limit in terms of what films I'm okay with that filmmakers make for themselves. Because this film is, uh, and I'm not trying to make a joke, masturbatory. To me. Okay. I, I found this film to be very... Um, this was made for Lars von Trier and nobody else. And I think that... Um, in That's just my interpretation. I know a lot of... This film is incredibly critically lauded. And I don't think I'm going to be on the same side as a lot of people on that. I think it's more divisive than you think. Okay. I, um, I, I know... Uh, obviously, any film that involves this kind of shit is going to be divisive. But I've heard, like, a lot of people talk about, like... Even if you have problems with Lars von Trier, Antichrist is a fucking masterpiece. I just think that this movie is not helpful to people. It, And I am not a person who is shares the same headspace that Lars von Trier has. Yes. Lars von Trier is a very depressed person, and this movie was made from a place of depression yes. and misery. And it communicates that very well. I like movies that are like that, that 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 are about depression and misery, but that move somewhere in the end. And this movie seems more into just feeling itself, feeling the misery and experiencing it. And I'm not sure that that's helpful to anyone. Gotcha. But maybe, maybe there'll be someone out there who is just as miserable as him and will be like, it is good that I know that someone feels this way about the world. Maybe that is a way that it can be helpful. To me, I felt like it didn't... 
aside from how not to support your loved one when they're going through shit. Yes. I'm not sure that it did anything positive. But then again, the art is not necessarily supposed to be positive. It doesn't have to be. So maybe this is just my own shit. But it definitely is my own shit, actually, now that I think about it. But uh, I can't recommend it because I personally didn't enjoy it. And I, I don't know. I feel I feel very weird about it. Gotcha. Yeah. I would recommend it. Okay. Um, it is an exceptionally beautiful movie. That we agree on. And it is worth seeing just to appreciate the beauty of it. It's There are some moments in this movie that are heartbreakingly beautiful. It's so striking. But other than that, I found the film to be incredibly empty. I don't think there's a lot of meaning in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's, like you said, sort of masturbatory. Yeah. And it's fine to make image make images for the sake of creating the imagery. Yeah. But it shouldn't feel as hollow as this does. For the most part, this movie just seems to be... Lars von Trier said to someone, Women are bad. <laughs> and that person said... What proof do you have? And then Lars von Trier wrote Antichrist. Sure. And he's like, look, she says she's bad. If a woman's saying it, it must be true. Right. So, uh, but yeah, I would, I and the performances are great. That, yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. But, and I, I haven't seen, I don't know if I've seen anything else with Charlotte Gainsborough. I have not. I looked into it. Willem Dafoe is a powerhouse actor who yes. can... Do just about anything. We're both big fans of Willem Dafoe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, clearly, we're going to have a lot to discuss about the meat of this film. Yeah, this is... What uh, little meat there is. Yeah, we'll definitely have a lot to say about the movie. A little bit about the movie. Uh came out in 2009. And like you said, this was this came out of Von Trier, uh, his struggles with his depression and anxiety. It was extremely bad at the time. It was like crippling. He was hospitalized for it. And yes. he started writing this as like an exercise. And this was a, this was his attempt to make a horror movie. Originally. Yes. He's, he, afterwards, he said, maybe it's not a horror movie. I don't know. I, I would say it's a horror movie. I would say, I mean, as, as much as any art film is a horror movie, sure. Uh, Lars von Trier is Danish. He was mm-hmm. 53 years old when he made Antichrist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's known for movies like Dancer in the Dark, Dogville, Melancholia, Nymphomaniac. Melancholia and Nymphomaniac are actually pseudo-sequels to this movie. They're all part of the Depression the Trilogy. The Depression Trilogy, or as uh, Your Movie Sucks, a YouTuber I follow, calls it the Being Horrible to Charlotte Gainsbourg Trilogy. I guess uh, Lars von Trier found his Uma Thurman. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, he was one of the founders of the Dogma 95 film movement, which eschewed uh, special effects and gimmicks like that. It's an art movement that College Billy absolutely despised. Von Trier has been accused by Bjork of sexual harassment. Has he? Yes, on the set of Dancer in the Dark. Not surprised. Uh, he's made some off-color jokes in public about sympathizing with Hitler. Uh, yeah, um, he, no, he announced in the middle of a press conference that he that he sympathizes with Hitler and says, yes, I, I am. I want him to be a Jew, but I'm actually a Nazi. Yeah, um, so he's... He's a very problematic figure. Yeah, uh, he's not the best guy. And the only other Lar- Lars von Trier movies I've seen, mm-hmm. uh, to be fair to him, is Dogville. But from what I know of his movies, 
women don't seem to make out too well. No. Uh, which sort of casts a pall over his work. And I can speak to Dogville, where literally Nicole Kidman just becomes a rape slave. Ew. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. Ah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> so. I also, the only thing that I knew about him in terms of, like, uh, women was there's a there's a famous shot in melancholia where uh kirsten dunst is sitting is lying out naked in the in the moonlight and uh she's or the planet light because there's a planet coming towards the earth and uh it lars von everyone talks about how symbolic it was meanwhile on set lars venture just called it the beaver shot cool yeah what a cool dude what a cool dude this is the episode where we get accused of being white knights <laughs> <laughs> if we weren't already this is where we get accused of i it. mean it, the dude just feels icky to me he just like, no he feels super icky i agree with you in the original draft of this script the twist of the movie was going to be yeah. that satan created the earth not god but an executive producer let this slip and von trier rewrote the script it is still in the movie. It's just like sort of a throwaway line instead yeah. of a twist. Which I, I sort of want to see that movie. I want. I want. Wonder how that worked into the whole thing. I wonder how much it got reworked. I honestly don't think it got changed very much. I think that. I think the movie we got is the movie that he probably started with. Okay, it, but just ends with. Uh... It just start ended with more of a definitive sort of no God created the the devil created the world. See, I was imagining that like Tom Hanks would come in as his <laughs> as his Robert Langdon character from Da Vinci Code, <laughs> and he'd be like, "Great Scott, the devil invented Earth." Does he say "Great Scott" a lot in those? Yeah, movies? he's he's first because they can't Robert Langdon is a copywritten character. They have to make him sound like Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> oh, the 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 famous Christopher Lloyd clause when yeah. getting out of. If, if you just characters. yeah, as long as you so can, if you want to use Mickey you, Mouse in anything, you can literally have Michael Keaton show up in a full Batman regalia in a in a Disney movie. As long as he does a Christopher Lloyd impression, you're fine. This bat signal needs one point twenty one gigawatts of power. <laughs> it's a very inefficient machine. The movie, for the most part, only has two characters: mm-hmm. uh, he, played by Willem Dafoe, yep. and she, played by Charlotte Gainsborough. Yes. Uh, the movie begins with very stylish title cards, and these were one of my favorite things throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just sort of these very pretty basic sort of abstract paintings they, with they, text. Yeah, were they paintings? I thought they were on a chalkboard. I'm not sure. Either way, I thought that they were probably a reference to his Dogma 95 roots. Gotcha. Because a lot of... The, the rules of Dogma 95 are very specific, but essentially they it's a very Brechtian concept of seeking to find truth by stripping away the artifices yeah. of cinema. And so a lot of the times the title cards would literally be handwritten on things. Lars von Trier saw Jurassic Park <laughs> and he was like, fuck, all these CGI dinosaurs or animatronic dinosaurs yeah. are... I, I don't understand how I'm supposed to learn that I'm supposed to hate women from this movie. Maybe if there were all this less... Maybe if there were less... If there was less flashy shit. Lose the dinosaurs. <laughs> Maybe Laura Dern can, like, spit in Sam Neill's face. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. Handwritten credits. Uh, um, the movie is divided into four chapters, plus a prologue and epilogue. Yes. The prologue is intensely beautiful. 
Yes, I have heard it described as one of the most beautiful sequences Lars Ventura has ever made. I am willing to believe it. One shot in particular I'm very fond of is we see sort of slow motion of steam from a shower being sucked into the fan, the the mm. ventilation fan. No, it's it's if you want to see the counter argument to Zack Snyder's use of slow motion as yes. being completely pointless, this use of slow motion is beautiful. It manages to make Willem Dafoe or possibly body doubles ball sack slapping against Charlotte Gainsbourg's body as they fuck look somehow hauntingly beautiful. Yeah. I was more, both times I watched this, I was more distracted by like, holy shit, that's unsimulated sex. Oh yeah. No, I was more just like, wow. No, yeah. No, there's, there's unsimulated. This is the moment where it's very clear that it's unsimulated sex. It's either Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsbourg or it is uh, two porno body doubles. I, I, I would not be surprised if it were Charlotte Gainsbourg. I don't think it's Willem Dafoe because we mm-hmm. never see like a full body shot, a full frontal nudity body body shot of Willem Dafoe. We never see his dick attached to his body. That is very true. Um, the only time we see his dick... No, you're right. Absolutely. I, I just put that together. You're absolutely correct. Um, but yeah, so in this sequence, Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsbourg are... are they're making wild, passionate wild, love. Wild, passionate love. They move from the bathroom to the bedroom. They're they're going on top of different surfaces. They're fucking on top of their kids' toys. Yeah, they're knocking over some 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 liquid. Uh, there is a uh, baby monitor that appears to be on mute, which I do not understand why that's a function of baby monitors. <laughs> that seems like it's, counterproductive. Like either turn it on or turn it off. That's uh, that's a seasons of belief con person parents. <laughs> level of like all right we're gonna neglect our child but if cps comes like no we have these monitors right yeah. they're on all the time look the battery's on low but and they're fucking and while they're fucking the laundry machine's going so mm-hmm. it's noisy as hell in there they have the baby monitor on mute the baby client, nick. nick who is the only named character yes um, and also uh the only other character whose face we see aside from he and she true uh, he climbs out of the crib uh, and makes his way to the window. Well, first he watches them have sex. Yeah, and then... He climbs up on a table and looks, here's... Looks into the camera with a little knowing sort of like... Mommy and Daddy mommy are and fucking... They're having fun, aren't they, folks? It's a very, it's a very funny face that that baby makes. Do you, do you think... Do you think this movie would be better? Uh, first off, uh, I didn't mention that this sequence is in black and white. It is. Uh, it's set to an opera aria. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, hauntingly beautiful. But do you think this sequence could be improved if Lars von Trier sort of did like a look who's talking thing <laughs> with Nick who's like... Where he like looks into the camera and he's like, While the cat's away, the mouse will play. Only Mommy and Daddy are knocking boots. <laughs> Only if the baby had the voice of the narrator from The Big Lebowski. <laughs> Sam Elliott? Sam Elliott, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Mommy uh, and Daddy are knocking boots. I know about you, but I'll take I'll take comfort in that. Nick climbs up on the table. Yeah. And here's where we are first introduced to a recurring concept throughout the movie of the three beggars. Yes. And uh, it shows up here and at the end, and that's it. No, it's all throughout. Is it? I, I will point it out. Okay. Um, 
uh, here we see him in statue form. Yes. Uh, some sort of house decoration. And the three beggars are grief, despair, and pain. Right. And after he climbs up on the table, he makes his way to the, the window, mm-hmm. opens it, and falls over. And I will give the scene credit. I had the fact that this movie was about a baby falling out of a window while they were having sex yeah. and dealing with that afterwards spoiled for me like ages ago but it still hurt it's this is one of the more effective emotional scenes it's in the movie it's such a well done scene it it still hurt yeah. and uh just and i'm not saying that like when it hit and also you do get to see it hit when just when it's it stepped off Stop calling the child it. Sorry. When he stepped off the ledge and he just started to descend very slowly, like, my heart just kind of, like, flew out of my body for yes. a second. It's like the end of Mother, where you know what's coming, yeah. uh, but it's still very effective. I've had a lot of this movie spoiled for me, which might be why it did not affect me as much. But, yeah, this was still so well done. Mm-hmm. And it's snowing, and the snow looks so beautiful, contrasted with this terrible event. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a, a match shot where you see him, the the Nick falling, and then it match cuts to her descending as uh, as part of the thrusting. Yeah. Just descending, and it's 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 um, matching this tra- this imminent tragedy with... Uh, her ecstasy it's it is it's it's wonderful it's it's incredible it's a, yeah. it speaks to what this movie could have been if Lars von Trier wasn't just like the worst man fuck women <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so I you I, know Lars I, I don't know if you should hate the women so much uh, yeah, they're pretty good Lars uh. <laughs> shut up Willem <laughs> By the way, I want to. I just want to say, Willem Dafoe. If you ever see him in in like interviews in real life, is so not a Willem Dafoe character. He's like one of the most like just sort of cheerful, sort of lackadaisical personalities ever. When you have a face yeah. that makes you perfect for the Green Goblin, yes, you need to counteract that if you want to make it in that industry. <laughs> Like so you, you need just to be, be, you have to become the friendliest person ever. Yeah, because you look like a bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Willem, if you're listening. <laughs> if you're listening, I love you, dude. We, like we, you're we, amazing. We fucking adore you. Um, dude. and then we enter chapter one: grief. grief. Uh, we're at Nick's funeral. The faces of the rest of the funeral party are blurred. Yes, uh, they are. There are other people present, but we cannot see their face. I love it. It's a wonderful, subtle effect. It's great. Um, uh, she collapses. Well, I do want to make a point of this. He and she are walking towards the camera, towards the car, uh, and he is in tears. He is sobbing violently. Yes. And she is completely stone-faced. But then a reversal suddenly happens where she collapses, he snaps to attention and rushes to her, and... For a majority of the film going forward after that, the entire film is focused on her grief, and he is stone-cold professional. This is, I think, and you may correct me, the only time that we really get to see him mourn Nick. 
the rest of the movie is he is entirely focused on her. Yeah. So, but I wanted to make sure that we point that out because he is going to come off as quite the bastard for the rest of this movie. Yeah. And so this is one of the only times he gets to have some human emotion. One could argue because Nick, or not Nick, he, he. Uh, is portrayed as the good guy. He's the good guy. He's so devoted. He's helping. Let's, well, I think we have a difference of opinion on that, but okay. I think Lars von Trier was very much trying to be like, look at all the shit this dude is going through, but he still loves his wife. He's still there. Okay. Um, It could be a thing. It could be more complex than that. You could be right that it could be. I think you and I have different interpretations of the movie. Yeah. I, I was... I was going in with a distaste for Lars von Trier. So was I. Which yeah. is always going to color it. Mm-hmm. And also, coming off of Deerskin, sure. and especially hearing Brendan's theory, which I believe I cut out of the last episode just because we sort of fucked up explaining it. We, we, we did a bad job. And I didn't want to uh, not do it justice. Right. But Brendan's theory of Deerskin was that it was specifically an attack on Lars von Trier. Right. And when you match that with the style over substance, which is where... I'm landing with Antichrist is right. that it's a beautiful looking movie, but there's not much under the skin. Okay. Uh, so I'm seeing this as a very basic, like he's good because he's still trying to help. He's still trying to do the right mm-hmm. thing. And he has control of his emotions. He's a logical controlled. He's, he's supporting this family that's falling apart. See my interpretation of the film is actually the opposite. Okay. My interpretation of the film is, and I know you said like you, you you think this movie is very anti-women, and I think that does is definitely supported because you knew more about Lars von Trier's history with women going into this than I did. I just knew that I thought he was a jerk and about the Nazi shit. Um, but, uh, and I knew about his depression. So I was going into this knowing about his depression. I was thinking that... Charlotte Gainsbourg is the one that he was uh, sympathizing with. Well, he has that, said that he identifies with she more than he. Right. And that Willem Dafoe is the voice of therapists who have been trying to help him, especially when he was in the hospital. Since, uh, just going slight, a couple seconds ahead, after she collapses, she ends up in the hospital for depression. Yeah. He is the voice of those therapists and the reason, and he ends up being proven wrong over the course of the film because, uh, she, I interpreted this as Lars von Trier saying, people don't understand what I'm going through. People don't understand my feelings and the way that he, and the, the child death at the beginning of this movie was more a way in for him to be like, how can I make someone feel as bad as I do always? And so he's like, child death while you're having fun seems like in a, and him being Catholic in a sinful way, gotcha. having fun in a sinful way. Uh, and so I, I saw that as, as just his, his key into that to make a character feel as, to give a character a reason that an audience could attribute to why they felt as bad as he did, and then make Willem Dafoe out to be this manipulative, emotionless bastard 
who just is constantly trying to fix the problem instead of listening to Charlotte Gainsbourg and all of the things that she's trying to tell him about how she feels. Especially since throughout the movie we will see him repeatedly, she will make a statement and he will immediately negate the statement. That is a 100% valid interpretation. Mm -hmm. And it would not surprise me if that is exactly how Lars von Trier feels about this film. Sure, but this is not how you feel about the film. No, this is what... uh, No. And I will point out later, not to front load it too much, (laughs) where I think he's really just pointing at Charlotte Gainsborough and being like, you're the fucking villain. Well, there's definitely one scene where... Because one thing that uh, Lars von Trier is is infamous for, not being subtle with the dialogue. Yes. People just kind of say what they think, and uh, that happens in a, a lot of his movies. And the way people talk about it in when they talk about his other movies, I was led to believe that was not the case in this movie. It is the case in this movie. People are not subtle. People no. do not talk like people in this movie. No. Uh, uh, let's let's start talking about this more in a more linear fashion again. <laughs> but she collapses. Yeah. And next we see her in the hospital. Yes. Uh, she's visited by he, and we're, we learn that she has been there a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, her grief is atypical, which means that it's severe outside of the normal realms of grief. Sure. It's consuming her. And uh, he is very down on the doctors. Yes. There. Dr. Wayne. Dr. Wayne. Fuck I wish... Dr. Wayne. Man... I, I imagine Dr. Wayne is like Dr. Johnny Fever. <laughs> I imagine Dr. Wayne is Michael My- Mike Myers playing yeah. Wayne from Wayne's World, <laughs> okay. as, but as a doctor. Oh, man. <laughs> Lars von Trier's Wayne's World would be so great. Except the, the, the body cavity search that Rob Lowe goes through in that one scene just takes like a really long time. And we like spend most oh. of the movie focused on it. <laughs> uh, the Bohemian Rhapsody scene is shot from outside the car in slow motion. He disagrees with the doctor, thinks she's on too much medicine. She's not just dealing with grief, she's dealing with guilt. She knew that Nick was getting out of his playpen, out of his yep. crib, and walking around. Uh, he didn't. Uh, she knew. She She's at fault. And this is the first time he negates something she says. She's the one who says, my grief is atypical. And then he comes back with, there's nothing atypical about your grief. He says, there's nothing atypical about your grief. You do not need this medication. All you need is uh, therapy. Yes. Because I am a therapist and I know what's best. Yes. And who? what other therapist or psychiatrist could know her better than him? Right. Which is, you know, uh, not a good thing yeah. for a therapist to say, especially if they are currently fucking you. Yes. <laughs> which becomes, <laughs> which becomes, becomes a, a thing. point. Yeah. Which becomes a thing later. And uh, next we see that she is home mm-hmm. and she pours her pills into the toilet and I'm sure Neil Breen saw this scene. Oh my God. And was like, <laughs> this was the inspiration for the scene in Fateful Findings where he does the same thing. That's right. I forgot about that scene in Fateful Findings. I feel like uh, there's so many amazing scenes in Fateful Findings yeah. that I, I legitimately <laughs> I forget how many. But I think he may have seen Antichrist because not only that, there's also like a significant shower sex scene at the opening of that movie. True. And immediately after she flushes the pills, we see her sobbing and saying she wants to die. Right. Maybe flushing your medication is not the best thing to do. Yeah. No, it's not. And granted, these are very broad strokes, but already Mm -hmm. I can see how influential Antichrist was for films in the 
the next decade, uh, the 2010s, like any particular examples? Uh, hereditary, Mother. Just oh shit, yeah, you're right. Just two off the top. Those were the Fuck, two. Hereditary is definitely going for something like this. Yeah, and I think Hereditary is more successful in what it's trying to do. I am not a fan of Hereditary, but I, I, I can. This, you know, how when we saw. This is not an equitable comparison at all. I don't want you to think I think of Hereditary like The Room. Okay. But remember when we saw Rebel Without a Cause and you were like, this is the answer key for The Room? Yes. You saying that just gave me a whole new insight into Hereditary and what that movie is trying to be. Okay. Because uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think they saw Antichrist and they were like, I want to make something like that. Yes. Uh, um, I don't think they were like specifically, I'm going to remake Antichrist. No. But, um, but there are... The vibe is there. There's a vibe. Um, I do want to make a a quick point here. Um, We talk sometimes when we're watching David Lynch stuff, like The Return, and David Lynch will sometimes do something that is just uh, like, shit, that's incredibly beautiful and amazing. And then sometimes he'll have a weird Photoshop head of an actor he couldn't get because they're dead, floating around looking like something that would air on Adult Swim. Yeah. Um, And you're like, is this supposed to look as bad as it does? Usually, you kind of have to say, maybe it is supposed to look as bad as it does because it's David Lynch. Yeah. This movie has the same thing, where uh, you said that you were confused that, on Wikipedia, I think, it called this film experimental. I think what it was referring to is that there are certain vestiges of Dogma 95 still here where sometimes there are these incredibly well-shot, beautiful tableaus, uh, there are these incredible bits, and then sometimes the camera is just handheld. It's still a red camera, so the footage is still gorgeous. But it's like, it's handheld, he's like randomly zooming in and zooming out, racking focus weirdly cutting in in the middle of the same shot and it suddenly becomes so for lack of a better term amateur feeling that i don't know if it's intentional or if that was a day he just didn't care as much or i know that he has said that he made the movie with half of his normal uh mental faculties available to him Mm. because of his depression but I don't know what that is. And yeah. apparently this is something, again, that continues throughout a lot of his work. He'll just, sometimes he'll be like, I really want to get this shot right. And sometimes it's like, I'm I'm baby's first camcorder footage. Gotcha. And that, that was constantly driving me nuts throughout the entire film. Didn't really register for me. But you know more about the minutia of like camera work and stuff like that sure i'm more very like on a troglodyte level of like <laughs> oh that's pretty <laughs> just the, the 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 act of watching movies with brad is interesting because he'll at random points just point at the screen and go oog and every time fire shows up screen, i, I have he'll to just, leave he'll I'm just like, he'll just start screaming yeah <laughs> please if you ever send us a movie suggestion. Yeah. Trigger warnings for fire. Trigger warnings for fire. Trigger yeah. warnings for mastodons. Little known fact, Brad, bef- we unfroze Brad right before the first episode of this yeah. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> they, they unfroze me. Yeah. And they said, hey, what do you want to do now that you're unfrozen? And I was like, is there a medium in which 
physical things are captured onto images and then <laughs> light is shown through them and they're shown in a sequence that imitates movement and through them a story is told and they said yes it's and weird i said that you're that specific about your desires and i said is there a normal and an abnormal for this form they said yes <laughs> And I said, is there a form of entertainment which can be made in a person's home and broadcast anywhere throughout a, <laughs> almost a web of interconnected devices? And they said, yes. You're I'd a visionary. Like, a Thousand Wives of Weird, hosted by an unfrozen caveman cinephile and some weird guy that he found on a compound somewhere who only ever listened to one bruce springsteen song for most yeah. of his life <laughs> this is a weird universe we're a weird cinematic universe we're building for yeah. ourselves here and if uh, and with our memories i'm sure we'll be uh yeah the mythology is going to be all over yeah. the place <laughs> she tells he that he's always been distant and that he's indifferent to whether his child is alive or dead which is untrue yeah. because we saw him we saw very him visibly and you could almost argue that um He's controlling nature over she is almost his way of coping with the grief. Well, she mentions that it's he almost sees her as a project now. Yes, I I think that that's very much a, a legit interpretation that his his uh, his therapist brain has taken over and he's like, this is a project I can yeah. take care of. I can take my mind off my dead child mm -hmm. by. Uh, Focusing it on my cuckoo wife. <laughs> yes. Do you think this movie would be more popular if it were called Cuckoo Wife? <laughs> I th I think the opposite. I think it would be less popular if it was called Cuckoo Wife. I <laughs> I think Antichrist. The title Antichrist is one of the one of the best things the movie has going for it because people hear Antichrist and they're like, "Oh shit, a horror movie sounds like The Omen. I'll watch it." And then suddenly. Spoilers, Defoe's penis is being crushed. I think Cuckoo Wife uh, prepares you for female genital mutilation. <laughs> sure, yeah, I think so. Uh, Cuckoo Wife is the title it would have had if this was uh, uh, a John Waters movie. <laughs> if John Waters had made this, it would be called Cuckoo I Wife. Was just, I was just thinking about Serial Mom. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to make an illusion. Side note. I think overall, Meet yes. the Hollowheads affected me way more than Antichrist. I think Meet the Hollowheads, made in <laughs> 88 or 89, unsettled me so much more and made me so much more uncomfortable uh, than anything in Antichrist. You know what? I think it did me too. <laughs> Our plan, if we make it this far, is for the 50th episode to revisit Meet the Hollowheads because we did not give that film a fair shake. We both kind of gave it a negative review, and since then, every time we meet, there's at least one moment in our conversation, both on or off air, where we're like, you know what was good? Meet the Hollowhead. <laughs> it's like... You know what's been a transformative movie-watching experience? <laughs> meet the Hollowheads. Meet the Hollowheads. She, uh, there was a line here I wrote down because I thought it was meaningful. This is like... I feel like this is a very, um, I don't want to get too far into it, but I, I have very, uh, personal relationships with people. I, I am, I do not personally have clinical depression, Yes, but I have very close relationships with people who do have clinical depression, who I have not talked to about talking, airing their dirty laundry on the air. So yeah. I'm not going to name them, but, um, 
this line really stuck with me from my experiences of trying to help them or just listen to them. She says, will it just go on and on? And he says, no, it will change. Now, unfortunately, after that, she says, will it get better? And he says, it will get worse, which is also true. Yeah. But there was something about that line that kind of stuck with me. And it just, it very much felt like, yep, that's how it's, that's how it is. That's, that's how it is. Sometimes it change, it, it will change and it will get worse. And sometimes it will be better. Yes. But. No, there is some pathos in this movie. Yeah. Uh, we learned that they have a cabin in the woods called Eden. Mm-hmm. And she once went there with Nick to finish her thesis, but she never finished it. Yes. Which Willem Dafoe did not realize. No. He thought that she had finished it and just never told him about it. Which is kind of evidence that he is apparently not the most on top of things. True. In this relationship. Uh, She began to think her subject was glib and possibly even a lie. Uh, Mm. And this thought she traces back to he. Uh, Mm. He put this idea in her head. And this makes her want to fuck. Yes. She is is horny on main throughout most of this film. She is... And it's never clear if she she was this way before Nick's death. But she is clearly using sex as a coping mechanism. There is some theorizing. There are some people who theorize that Charlotte Gainsbourg and Willem Dafoe's characters that they play in uh, the third film in the Depression trilogy, uh, Nymphomaniac, uh, are the same characters as in this movie. Fun! Which uh, would say that, yes, Charlotte Gainsbourg was constantly, unrelentingly horny her entire life. Gotcha. We get, Who cares if that's canon? Uh, oh, man. Think of all the great Lars von Trier fan fiction there is out there. <laughs> Just imagine that this film is taking place at the same time as the plot of The Idiots. Oh, and then man. cry. I like to imagine that there's a Dogville fanfic <laughs> that takes place in an alternate universe where they're all at a superhero high school. Sure, sure, why not? We get a wonderful, eerie shot of a bunch of, I think they're birch trees, Yes, uh, bent over into arches, not snapped, just bent over unnaturally. There's a lot of wonderful tree imagery in this movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Later, she is having a severe panic attack. Yes. He calms her with breathing exercises. Which are real breathing exercises that they they do in this movie, which I thought was great. That they they actually use real techniques. Yeah. Willem Dafoe studied with some cognitive behavioral therapists. And he actually, like, sought out people who were in the field his character was supposed to be in. Hey, I'm making a movie about crazy people. (laughs) Want to help me? You know, I'm something of a therapist myself. That's what he said to Dr. Wayne. <laughs> you know, I'm something of a doctor myself. I know, I've read your paper on exposure therapy. It's brilliant. <laughs> You're he. You wrote the monograph on establishing time of death by insect activity. He oh, tells God. her that she's still in the anxiety stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, she says it's not anxiety. It's physical uh, which is foreshadowing for what she will do at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, presumably that is... Um... Also, uh, just in general, Willem Dafoe spends far too much time telling Charlotte Gainsbourg how to, what's wrong with her and how to correct it. Yeah. 
just sometimes just let people feel what they need to feel. Yeah. Like I, I understand she's having a panic attack and you're trying to help, but like there's a reason why people see their therapist and then they go home. Yes. Like you don't spend 24 hours a day with your therapist because people being told how wrong you are for living the way you are living 24 hours a day is not yeah. helpful. Uh, but she, she says it's not anxiety, it's physical, yeah. which here's another place where I'm saying that I'm using as a, uh, evidence of the misogyny of the film, okay. of the, uh, placement of she as a, an avatar for possibly all women. Uh, she says her anxiety is physical, uh, which presumably, uh, referring to her clitoris, which she will chop off at the end. Yeah. And maybe that's just the consequence of it being an external feature, which women don't have a lot of external sex features to no. cut off. True. Um, but it could be meant to represent the whole of a woman's reproductive system, which in Von Trier's mind represents womanhood. And so you're, you you combine it, to, you're, you're connecting it to the, real world concept of hysteria yes the the idea of doctors saying that women are inherently crazy because of their reproductive cycle bingo gotcha okay that is a very legitimate interpretation that i had not considered but i definitely see where you're coming from sometimes i like to think of these episodes as trials <laughs> where we just present the evidence mm -hmm. for our sides and i win Oh my god. But then whatever, he, dude. <laughs> but then he tells her that anxiety is physical. And yeah. he lists a bunch of physical manifestations of anxiety, which again are very real. Um and which she is probably why you should have taken your medication. Yeah. Take your meds. Yeah. Uh as someone who yo-yos their meds a lot, not a good habit. Not a good habit. Once again, she tries to have sex with him very forcefully. Very forcefully. He resists, saying, you shouldn't have sex with your therapist. No matter how much he enjoys it. Um, and he tells her to do her breathing, clapping his hand over her mouth. Yes. No, he's he's he, he, he physically holds her down. He's got one leg over her vagina, uh, his hands like on her face and arms, and he's just like, no, no sex, do the breathing. There is a lot of bottomless wrestling. There is a lot of bottomless wrestling. In this movie. In this movie. To the point where it's almost like a clips for sale video. Later, he says that exposure therapy is the only way to go. It's the only thing that works, he says. They just have to figure out what she's afraid of. Shit. <laughs> right. Which, again, like... Maybe she's sad because her child is dead? What is the point of all this? Here's where this movie should have gone. Yeah. It should have uh, become a crime thriller about Willem Dafoe abducting children and just tossing them out the window until Charlotte Gainsborough is used to it. <laughs> like, Here's another one. What do you think of this? It seems to me that the most healthy thing for her is for him to just acknowledge, yes, I am fucking sad, too. Yes. Like, it seems like that would be the best thing for him to do, but he's just, he's just, he's abs he's all in on this Frasier Crane roleplay thing that he's doing. Let me propose another alternate Antichrist to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Instead of the character of he... Yes. It's the Batman villain, the Scarecrow. Played by Killian Murphy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> 
I think you could essentially have the same movie. I think it would be the same movie. <laughs> Except I I don't believe that Jonathan Crane has ever had sex. I, I, I just sincerely doubt that. I mean... We'll, we'll fudge it. We'll fudge it. <laughs> he can have sex with it like a straw penis. He tries to find out what she's afraid of, but she's mm-hmm. unsure. Uh, even later, she's having another episode. She's banging her head off the rim of the toilet. Mm, very uh, upsetting. Yeah. Uh, he stops her, and they end up having sex, which he regrets. Mm-hmm. Uh, he asks her what she's afraid of, and she says she's afraid of the woods. Mm-hmm. Eden, their cabin in particular... But I wrote my note here is, it's grief, buddy. Just let her grieve. Stop trying to fix it. I got very mad. <laughs> yeah, no, at, it's, at, it's... I got very mad at both of them. And I'll tell you why. I'm, I'm mad at Willem Dafoe for all the reasons I said. He is just fucking all of this up. Yeah. He's doing a very good, bad job of managing her feelings, managing his own feelings. Uh, and I was also mad at her because she's not a character. Whether, no. she, whether she is your version of this movie or my version of this movie. If she's your version of this movie, she's just an evil avatar of women. If she's my version of this movie, she's just a weird fucking mouthpiece of Lars von Trier's thoughts about life. Yeah. Um... And it's and it, either way, she's not a person. She doesn't talk like a person. And it's just not... It's not helpful. To anybody, it's this isn't this well, isn't exploring anything interesting. This is just Willem Dafoe being bad at therapy and Charlotte Gainsborough saying, "I'm still sad because you're bad at therapy," and that's the movie. Well, movies don't have to be helpful. No, they don't. George Melier wasn't like, "This is going to cure tuberculosis," <laughs> but I was entertained by that. By that, true. I guess, and again, this this comes back to what I said in the beginning. I just don't think this movie is made for me. I I think it's it's. This is one of the times where, like, maybe this movie is brilliant, and it's just not good for me to see yes. it. Uh, it's just not something that is appealing to me. But a, I don't know. I, well, it's not meant to be a crowd pleaser. It's not meant it's to be... It's definitely not. It's not meant to be, like, this is your favorite movie. <laughs> oh, I'm sick in bed. Gonna put on Antichrist. Let's see, what's on TV? <laughs> Chips? Ah, I'm gonna watch Antichrist. <laughs> I'm just imagining someone with like a thermometer sticking out of their mouth. A hot water bottle on their head. A hot water bottle on their head. You know, just complete, like, they just, they got like a big pitcher of orange juice and they're just like watching, they're just mindlessly watching Antichrist while sitting the the way I used to watch the Cosby show when I was a sick kid. Like, just. (laughs) Better than chicken noodle soup. As I said, she says she's afraid of the woods, Eden in particular, but that's not what she's afraid of most. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see out a view out of a train window at trees blurring together as they go by. Yes. Amazing little insert of a silently screaming Charlotte Gainsborough. Did you catch that? I think I missed it. Okay. I think I looked down for a second at the wrong time. It's one of those blink and you'll miss it things. Yeah. Uh, I caught it the first time. I was like, hey, is that an insert? I love inserts. <laughs> So I went back and paused it. It's it's great. It's a little yeah. unnerving thing. That's the other um, problem with taking notes on movies. Sometimes you miss shit. Yes. And she and he are on the train traveling towards Eden. And he sends she to the sunken place. Yes. He he, he hypnotizes her and, and, and she... 
I put a spell on you. <laughs> Perfect place for a stream and Jay Hawkins needle drop. <laughs> this movie could have used some more needle drops. He has her imagine she's at Eden mm-hmm. and to describe what she sees. Mm-hmm. And I cannot possibly do this justice with my words. Absolutely not. Uh, part of the... Should have sent a poet. Yes. <laughs> uh, part of the fun... One of the few things I do enjoy about taking notes is I'll see something unique and I'll be like, okay, I get to try to describe this. Good this, luck. I cannot do justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very dreamlike. She's walking in slow motion, but not regular slow motion. It's like she's moving through super water that's even thicker than regular water. You know that thing where you're in a museum and you see a painting of like a, a moment in time captured and it almost seems to be moving out of the corner of your eye sometimes yes. that's kind of the feeling that they captured here of just sort of like a painting that's kind of moving yes yeah it almost the first as the, david lynch would say it moving pictures the first uh part of this sequence she's in the distance and it almost looks like a stop motion animation. She looks so uh, unreal. Like even on my big ass TV, yeah, she's so tiny. It looks like I was like, is this a stop motion sequence? But then you clearly see her yeah. in uh, close up, not close up, but closer to the camera. Sure. It's just beautiful. It's haunting. I wish I could do it justice. Again, this is an exceptionally beautiful movie. Yes, uh, it's worth seeing just for the imagery. Uh, they disembark the train and hike to Eden. Well, first, I just, quick reference. She lies, he has her in the dream, lie down in the grass, and mm-hmm. he says, let yourself be absorbed by the green. Swamp thing, and yes. we move on. she becomes Swamp Thing. She becomes Swamp Thing. <laughs> Backdoor pilot for the DC Unlimited Universe, whatever the fuck their service App is. Thing, yeah. uh, swamp Thing, canceled before it aired. <laughs> Oops. They disembark the train and hike to Eden. As they're mm-hmm. hiking, she asks to lie down. As she does, he walks off and encounters a deer. Yes, as he's walking away, there is a lot of ethereal whooshing. Yes. The deer is very obviously CGI, mm-hmm. almost glowing, uh, mm-hmm. sort of ethereal. And this is the first beggar, because the beggars are associated with animals. That's right. It's all You're right, yeah. Um, and the deer is in mid, in the middle of giving birth. Wikipedia describes it as a stillborn fawn. Very likely. Uh, so this is... Uh, but the it's poor fawn s- is dead. Still in the middle of coming out of the deer. Yes. Um, and now here's where the sound effects department was really laying down. Because as this deer runs off, I wanted to hear like, flop, flop, flop. No, as the deer runs aw- runs away, the, the, the dead, the stillborn deer calf is flopping against its body almost like a separate limb and there's no there's no sound it's very still it's very quiet this is the first of many images of dead children in the forest we get to see i do not have the criterion edition of antichrist Mm -hmm. but i want to assume that there is an alternate audio track Where Michael Wins- with where Michael Winslow dubs in sound effects. Oh my God! Uh, how hard were you thinking of deer skin when you saw Willem Dafoe look at this deer? Did it come up at all? Honestly, it did not. Really, I'm surprised now that you say I, that that it did not. Because come up of what for me. Brendan said, my immediate yeah. association was like, 
Okay, yeah. No, this is... <laughs> I can definitely see it. And then we enter chapter two, mm-hmm. Pain, with the subtitle, Chaos Reigns. <laughs> it's so brutal. At this, this is when Willem Dafoe is teleported to a space station up on Mars, a portal to hell opens, and he takes up a BFG and has to kill all the demons coming through. Well, here's where I, I While think... While the rock yells, simplify, motherfucker. I think uh, if Lars von Trier had waited a few years, <laughs> then he could have done a cross-promotion with the WWE... Oh my god. ...and made this Chapter 2 Roman reign. And they, they, they promote the film by having Charlotte Gainsbourg <laughs> yeah, she goes, come into the ring. She goes and she wrestles the Hardy Boys... <laughs> Bottomless. Yeah. <laughs> it's her and Willem Dafoe, bottomless she tag tries, team competition against the Hardy she Boys. She tries to force herself on the Hardy Boys, and, and they're like, no! Charlotte Gainsborough hits CM Punk in the dick with some firewood. <laughs> God, imagine imagine if Lars Von Trier got to take over the WWE. It would be... One of the most interesting episodes of that series ever made. Uh, and definitely uh, not arable in American television. Uh, the couple continue their hike with she running on ahead. Wait, uh, they, they stop at a certain point. This is actually before the chapter break. And she says, I have to stop. The ground is burning. Mm-hmm. And again, he negates her. He says, the ground is not burning. Well, the ground isn't burning. <laughs> yes. He's right. Yeah. There's there's a fine line. There's a fine line be, between supporting and enabling. True, true. That's true. Uh, but yeah, they they move on, and uh, he's trying to make her stay in a moment where she's afraid, and she runs ahead. She runs away, which he later says was her cheating him. Again, exposure therapy is a legitimate thing. It is a legitimate thing. And he I'm is, not sure it's appropriate in this case. I don't know. Uh, again, she's not even sure. She wasn't even sure what she's afraid of. Uh, yeah. He mentions earlier that she's the one who always wanted to go out into nature. Yes. It's an odd thing. Speaking of which, that is one of the things that Lars von Trier wanted to make this movie about. He, he found it interesting that forests and the woods are a source of beauty and serenity for so many people. And yet at the same time are full of a bunch, everything that wants to kill you. Yes. Uh, so he, he thought that dichotomy was fascinating and wanted to make this movie. And because he's Lars von Trier, he can't just make a movie about that. He has to have someone explicitly say it yes. in the movie. You're afraid of the forest, but you always want to go there. Thanks, Lars. She runs on ahead. He eventually reaches Eden, which is filmed and scored very sinisterly. Now, how much of a connection do you think there is with Eden, Adam and Eve, the Genesis story? Because in a way, this whole movie sort of operates as a reverse Genesis, where it's about mm-hmm. an uncreation, it's about a destruction. Very obviously, the place is named Eden, mm-hmm. uh, and it's dealing with evil. And there's a uh, he and a her. There's, uh, again, people interpret uh, Genesis as being misogynistic, and it lays blame on women. Because the original sin was first women and then men. Yes. Uh, which ties into the misogyny angle. Sure. Women are the root of all evil. Do you think there's a lot to mine through that interpretation? Like, viewing this through a religious interpretation lens. I, de- I, I, I thought about that a little bit while I was watching it. I could not see 
uh, that there was intentional biblical connection there other than just simply sort of like uh, a very surface level, very surface level imagery. But uh, I guess that one could definitely attempt to find something there. But then again, as we've said before, you do run the risk of meeting the movie more than halfway yes. at that point. I, and again, this is, I, there kept being moments. And again, I'm not a strong analysis guy. Sure. I'm not, that's not. Neither am I, to be fair. I don't view anything as a puzzle. Like, I don't try to figure things out for my own. Okay. I, I just, I just watch it and experience it. You not a four and a half hour video about explaining Twin Peaks. Exactly. Right. I'm the type who might watch that video. Sure. Uh, but, uh, I, I I just go with the experience. Right. Um, but when I did try to put on my thinking cap and poke this movie at times, mm-hmm. I just found it to be empty, gotcha. as I said before. Right. Um, uh, at night, as they sleep, there's noises on the roof, which are acorns falling from the trees onto the tin roof. Yes. In the morning, he wakes up, and his hand is covered in ticks. Is that what that was? That's what Wikipedia says. Okay. That's okay. When I was watching it, I did not realize they were ticks. I thought they were like seeds. Yeah, I wasn't sure what they, they were either. Like pumpkin seeds? It was gross. It was gross. Yeah. It was very gross. Oh, also he finds photos of their baby in mm-hmm. the cabin when he arrives there and the baby uh is, you know, being a baby and It's a toddler. He's yeah. a toddler. Oh, right. Yeah. And Charlotte is in the pictures. But she is not smiling. She is very mm-hmm. sort of stone-faced. Uh, he devises an exercise where she walks around outside. Yeah. Even though she who had no problem walking through the grass yesterday, suddenly she's terrified of it. Yes. Like Jason and Freddy versus Jason suddenly being afraid of water. Uh, that's because he has rabies. That <laughs> subplot got cut out. Hydrophobia. And here's where I noted that I've never seen Willem Dafoe film so lovingly. <laughs> So, so handsomely. Right. And he's not, he is, like I said, he has a unique face. Yeah. Whether you find it attractive or not is completely subjective. Sure. But it's a unique face. It's not your traditional movie star face. He's not Rock Hudson. He is, and directors, filmmakers often use that unique face for sinister and monstrous characters. Mm Mm-hmm. And they film him as such. Right. Here he is filmed like a messenger of God. <laughs> it's all soft lighting. It's all, like, he looks like he should be uh, a cowboy in a Hallmark movie. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because he's not a messenger of God. He's the son of God. Yes. Yeah. So get it right, Lars. Um, she is successful at walking around. Mm-hmm. But suddenly a still living baby bird covered in ants drops from a tree mm-hmm. and is picked up by a hawk or eagle, some sort of bird of prey, the hawk, yeah. uh, who rends it apart and eats it. Yes. And for some reason, this upsets her. Well, I am not sure if it does. Here's another thing with filmmaking. Well, hold on. Let me, let me say something. Okay. I was being sarcastic. Uh, clearly, there's a parallel between this baby bird falling out of the tree and their son falling out of the window. Obviously. Uh, which yes. would understandably trigger her. Well, not only that, but we've seen already the dead baby deer hanging out of the back of its mother yes. earlier on. So, like, there's definitely a lot of symbolism when it comes to dead children yes. here. And the symbolism means dead children. Right. Yeah. No, it's... Yeah, it's just, it's just throwing in your face, like, Do you remember there's a dead baby in the movie? 
Because there's a dead baby in this movie. This dead baby represents that dead baby. <laughs> anyway, so... But I also imagine, after Charlotte Gainsborough runs into the cabin after seeing the bird get ripped apart, yeah. I imagine Willem Dafoe going, You goddamn dead baby birds! <laughs> Leave my wife alone! So, here's the way that the film is constructed. We see the, the baby bird fall from the tree... Mm-hmm. We have a close-up of it covered in ants, is then picked up by the hawk. The hawk is rending its flesh, biting into it. We then smash cut to her and him hugging with no reaction on their faces. They're not looking at anything. They're they're just hugging. We then, um, again, smash cut to them inside... And she's crying, saying, I miss him so much, to assumingly talking about Nick. Yeah. So, as far as we know, they could have not seen that at all. True. They could just be, she could just be having another She's just sad being moment. cuckoo. She's just being sad. Uh, and I wrote, I wrote down, can I get a match cut up in this bitch? Like, <laughs> holy shit. There are some basic fundamentals of filming. What story am I supposed to be getting from this, Lars? Dead babies. Dead babies. Because <laughs> is, is the story just that dead babies exist? Woman bad, dead babies, nature. <laughs> nature, I'm depressed. That's it. Uh, she remembers the last time she was at the cabin. We see part of her work, which is called uh, gynocide or gynocide. I'm not sure which. I'm going to say gynocide. Gynocide. Uh, we hear, and this is an amazing sequence. This was one of my favorite scenes. We hear a child crying, and she frantically searches through the woods around the cabin for Nick. And eventually she finds him. Mm-hmm. But he's not crying, and no. the sound still persists. Yeah. And I want to point out that Nick is playing with a block of wood, much like the one that will be used to smash his daddy's ding-dong. Right. And he's in the same uh, shed. So there's a nice oh, bit of foreshadowing there. Interesting. Does it mean anything? I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so either. But, uh, yeah. And but, yeah, she sees Nick, and he's just doing toddler stuff. Yep. And the, the crying still persists, and it's this wonderful, eerie sequence. There's so much of this movie that works. Yeah, I, I love this, because it's like, again, we talk about one of our favorite directors, David Lynch, mm-hmm. and one of the things that we like about his stuff is that it feels like a nightmare. Yes. And this scene... I'm sure is a nightmare a lot of mothers have oh, had. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, just like like the crying is coming and it just keeps getting louder and you're searching and you're searching and you can't find the baby. Where is the baby? Where is the baby? Mm-hmm. He tries to rationalize her memories when she suddenly attacks him. Yes. Uh, again, she's cuckoo. Uh, Lars von Trier's characterization for she is that she is cuckoo bananas. Or maybe she is just understandably mad because he keeps saying that her feelings are meaningless. Or that her experiences don't mean anything. Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. It could all be uh, manifestations of frustration. Mm-hmm. Again, it, it's all... It's all on how you approach it. Like, it, yeah. it, this... And I, I said this before. This movie could be filled with uh, psychology and symbolism that I'm just too stupid to get. <laughs> I, I want to correct that. I don't think you're too stupid to get. I think... That you might not be picking up on. Gotcha. Because you're not a dumb person, but this might not be 
Gotcha. You just might just not be tuning into this. But I can sort... I feel like I've seen enough Allow weird... me to negate your feelings. Sure. <laughs> but I feel like I've seen enough weird shit where I can sort of mm-hmm. get an idea of whether there's any depth behind it. Like, yeah. watching Deerskin, I immediately was like, there's, there's something, something going here. on here. Yeah. Uh, watching... Uh... And David Lynch is also very much about imagery over interpretation yes but i still feel like there's a solid base to what and things like mulholland drive and the return as abstract as they may be especially in the case of the return Mm -hmm. you still feel like there is intention and purpose behind what is happening sure yeah even if the intention purpose is just just to to evoke something just to be abstract um sometimes that's just the way it wants to be and that's fine but antichrist feels like it's trying to say more yeah, Antichrist feels like it's either trying to say more or evoke something in you. It's trying to get, a, like, at a, at a feeling. And I'll mention this now. This film mm-hmm. is dedicated to the Soviet filmmaker Andrei Tarkovsky. That's right, yes. Uh, and Tarkovsky is known for making very long films that are all about feeling. Like, it's all about yes. the tone. It's all about what he's going to make you feel. Uh, his films aren't particularly exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they're 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 tone pieces. Yes. Uh, so he could be trying to go for something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, he tries to rationalize her memories when she suddenly attacks him. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't last long. And later she's waxing rhapsodic about nature and death. And she says that nature is Satan's church. Yes, this is, is a throwaway w- line that's the only remnant of the Satan created the world storyline. Which is a wonderful line. It's it very is. metal. It doesn't mean anything, No, though, it doesn't. Because she just says that apropos of nothing and doesn't like follow it up with anything. The only thing I can think of, and this, again, might be meeting the movie more than halfway, sure. is nature and the wilderness and the wilds do sort of have a connotation of evil and the realm of the devil. Right. The devil takes a lot of imagery from Pan. The god of panic and the god of nature, the god yes. of roadways. There is an idea that, again, there could be something there. How mm-hmm. much, how far am I meeting the movie? How much of this is even fully formed on Lars von Trier's part? Sure. Um, I don't know. It yeah. feels like I'm giving the movie more credit than it deserves. Right. And so... But again, I and I cannot stress this enough, I do not like Lars von Trier's as a... Lars von Trier is a person. Right. So that is going to color my... I think that is coloring both of our opinions on yes. this movie a lot. The The line she says is, the life is the cry of all the things that are to die, talking specifically about the acorns falling on the on the roof, because the mm-hmm. acorns are seeds. Acorns are, uh, the, are this tree's way of reproducing. Yes. And most of them are very unlikely to ever produce a tree. I think she even says that yeah, only one only one, one in a hundred years needs to in a hundred years will sprout. And um it's and especially cuz they're bouncing off the roof. It's it's you know, they're they're not exactly having the most uh graceful descent. No. Um and again, this to me feels like a depressive's view of the world. It feels like someone who's who is when you, yeah it's a very nihilistic it's a view. very nihilistic view it's just very sort of when you are depressed from what i understand i have not had depression so i haven't seen that movie either but again it's been described to me yes that is how it feels you feel like you're the only one who can see the truth of the way things are yeah i i get that feeling a lot yeah but i would argue that that's not necessarily 
correct. No. That's just how you feel. And maybe... And again, like you said, there is allowing people to feel the way that they need to feel, and then there is enabling. Yes. And I feel like at a certain level, Lars von Trier, this is why I call it masturbatory, Lars von Trier is writing these movies to enable himself and be like, yes, yes Lars, you are right to feel this way. Yeah, and that goes back to my little bit about Lars von Trier writing this movie as proof that women are evil. Yeah. You could also see it as him writing this movie as the proof that, like, no one can understand. Like, no you one don't can understand, understand the me. depths of I my depression. I am so sad. I am right to be sad. Imagine a billion toddlers falling out window. This movie should have just been <laughs> Lars von Trier taking like a, a a 45 record of Tears in Heaven by Eric Clapton <laughs> and just like smashing it and being like, Child out of window, you still don't understand. <laughs> Oh my god. Uh, later she talks about how the last time they were there, Nick would wander off a lot. Yeah. Uh, next we see probably my favorite shot. Uh, we see Nick in the same dreamlike landscape as uh, when she was hypnotized. She's recounting their last trip. It barely looks real. Nature is made so strange. He examines a notice from the med- medical examiner, right. which he found after Nick's death. Yes. Then we get another amazing shot. Mm-hmm. He's outside the cabin, and acorns are raining down from the trees around him. This is the shot that is the um, the sort of screen save screensaver image when you're on Amazon Instant Play. They have just an image of Willem Dafoe staring into the yes. camera with acorns falling behind him. It's a. It's another one of the most. It's it's another one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen. Antichrist yes. is a is a series of horrible misery interspliced with the most beautiful thing you've ever seen every couple of inches. Yes. There's wonderful shots here. Uh, I just... Wonderful sequences. Lars von Trier, as much as I do not like him, clearly has talent. He knows what he's doing. That cannot be denied. Sometimes. Yes. Yeah. If nothing else, and again, I've only seen one other movie, Mm -hmm. he is at least capable of creating the beauty that we see here. Yes. Even if it is... Even if the purpose of it is to go, isn't life shit? (laughs) Right. I'm showing you beautiful things, but all the beautiful things I'm showing you are terrible. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Willem Dafoe's ball sack. Yes. Uh, The next day, after a good sleep, she proclaims she's cured. And this, before she says she's cured, there's like a little moment where they're both sitting on the, the porch... And it's the only scene in the entire movie where the two of them feel like real people. Because they finally seem like two people who may have gotten married at some point. Yes. And they actually almost seem like they like each other. It's just this, a brief moment of chemistry between the two actors where they're actually allowed to just react off of each other. Yeah. And it's my one of my favorite bits because it's just the most underwritten little bit of acting they were probably just uh, i wouldn't be surprised if lars von Trier was just like do whatever yeah and uh willem dafoe i haven't again i haven't seen charlotte gainsborough in much yeah. or anything else but uh she's great in this so she i can is. easily see that they just rolled they just made it natural they do have good chemistry um uh, but then yeah she says i'm well again i'm cured he's skeptical and sort of wanders off mm-hmm. out in the brush he encounters a CGI fox <laughs> tearing out its own insides. 
Then the fox speaks in a deep voice and saying, Chaos reigns. <laughs> and the first time I saw this, I laughed out loud. So here's here's the thing that confuses me. Uh, they actually trained a fox to open its mouth when they told it to so that they could uh, do this scene. And then they used a CGI fox anyway. Yo, but- if I were that fox, I'd be so pissed. <laughs> I would be so pissed if I were that fox. <laughs> they trained it all that time so it would open its mouth so they could say chaos reigns and have it look like it was talking. Chaos reigns. Yeah, and then they CGI'd the fox anyway. I don't maybe the fox wasn't doing it right. I don't know, but it seems like a waste of time. But this bit. Uh-huh. Part of me loves it. Part uh-huh. of me is like, this is gnarly, this is metal, chaos reign. Yeah, chaos oh, reign. And while, while, did we mention that there's uh, the there's a fox that's giving birth at the same time, and she's like tearing out her own stomach trying to get I the meant, baby it, out? I don't think she's trying to get a baby out. Oh, I assume that she was because every animal is trying to get a baby out in this movie. No, uh, the fox is just tearing itself apart. Oh, I thought it was trying to tear a baby out of its stomach. I don't believe so. But this imagery is gnarly. I love it. Yeah. But still... Also, foxes the, are cute. At the end of the day, it's a fucking talking fox. <laughs> and that's a hard sell. No matter what that fox is saying. <laughs> How did you feel about this sequence? It's one of the scenes that I knew was coming. Like, one of the most... One of the things that I was... Like, one of the only things I knew about Antichrist... Dead baby, Willem Dafoe's dick gets smashed by a log, Yep, and talking fox. Uh, so I I was looking for it from the beginning of the movie. I was like, where's Where, that fox? Where's that fucking talking fox? Can't wait, wait for the talking fox. Did you think it would be like their sidekick? No, I knew it was Like they're, they're trying to make dinner and the fox keeps stealing the meat? No, I knew it was going to be only in one scene, but I was waiting for that scene. And then he comes in, and I was like, okay, what's the fox going to say? And he says, what does the fox say? <laughs> what does the what fox say? What a timely reference. What a reference. And the fox says, chaos reigns. And I'm like, by the way, is Willem Dafoe doing the voice? Is it? It is, yep. What and, a talented man. <laughs> and I was, I was watching it, and I was like, okay. And then I thought about it, and I realized, wait a second, that means nothing. nothing. <laughs> that means Nothing. Although shit does start to pop off in the next chapter. This, maybe so, the fox was warning him that hey, chaos about is to, about to reign. Chaos is about to get real here, bitch. But like, man, that was disappointing to me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I like I said, I want to love it, but it mm-hmm. it if it makes me laugh when it's not supposed to. Yeah, not the best thing. Right. And once again, the chapter ends with a spooky animal. Yes. And we move on. Do you... <sighs> okay. I love the disappointed air that just escaped there. Alternate titles for Antichrist. Oh, God. Okay. Cuckoo Wife. Right. Or Spooky Animals. Spooky. <laughs> Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsborough and Lars von Trier's Spooky animals. <laughs> Kooky wife and spooky animals. Cuckoo wife. Cuckoo wife and spooky animals is my favorite Skrillex track. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it's my favorite HR Puffin stuff show. <laughs> it's my favorite David Bowie album. <laughs> uh, but we Tis move on. Pity, she's so spooky. 
But we move on to chapter three, Despair, yes. Yes. subtitled Gynocide. Mm. Back inside, as she sleeps, he goes up into the attic and mm-hmm. finds artifacts of she's thesis work, including the Gynocide journal, which we saw before. And a lot of medieval woodcuts. Yes. A lot of women being burned as witches mm-hmm. uh, or just being... Gynocide means the killing of women. We also see a constellation map featuring our friend, the three beggars. So, still there. The fox is one of the three beggars. Right. Uh, the three beggars are a deer, a crow, and a fox, which mm-hmm. makes sense because the crow and the fox are scavengers. Okay. Yeah. And I, mm-hmm. maybe deer, I guess, are too. I'm not sure. Could be. I know they're, they're way grosser than people give them yeah. credit for. Maybe Lars von Trier's, while he was in the hospital, just knew a really clingy deer. You know what? He just had some killer style he wanted to show off. Hey, Lars, can I have your pudding? <laughs> It doesn't look like you're going to eat your pudding, Lars. Can I have, can I have your pudding? <laughs> Lars! Fuck Lars, off. I am, a, I am a Nazi. Oh, it's vanilla. I want a chocolate. I guess beggars <laughs> can be choosers. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. He looks... He looks inside her uh, thesis slash serial killer journal. Yeah. And finds that the writing inside degrades significantly as it goes on. Yes. Um, Until it basically turns into not shorthand, shorthand. Yes. Yeah. And now there's a shift where we assumed that Cuckoo Wife became Cuckoo after uh, Baby went bye-bye. Right. But now there's evidence that she was crazy all along. Right. And this is where the shift happened with me. Whereas before, uh, I I thought sympathy was supposed to be with the wife. And I still kind of think of the, through the first half, you're supposed to, to side with the wife. Yes. In the second half, you start to side more with the husband as the husband becomes more and more the victim of the wife. Exactly. As opposed to the wife being the victim of the husband as it was in the first half. And here's where my interpretation of this as just being women-hating on Lars von Trier's part starts really starts to coming to focus. really starts to solidify um, in this bit. Because... We can understand if her reaction, her behavior is reaction to the grief, mm-hmm. but once it was always there, yep. then the stigma of mental illness becomes increased where it's like, oh, oh, she's dangerous. Yep. Willem Dafoe is sleeping with danger. So yeah. So then they start role-playing. Yes. He tries one last exercise. Yeah. During the course, she reveals that she's researched the history Mm-hmm. Of women being murdered, just systematically. Right. And she realized that humankind was evil. Yes. And if humankind is evil, mm-hmm. then woman must be evil too. And here's where I was like, this seems like a thing where Lars von Trier is going like, look, a woman saying it, it must be true. <laughs> I I admit this feels very much like that. And again, we know Lars von Trier is incapable of subtlety. Yes. So, yeah, he's just having someone say something. And now, again, he is coming into more focus as the rational, the good man. And he says, mm-hmm. uh, that's cuckoo. You're bananas, lady. That's the exact quote. <laughs> uh, that's against the whole idea of your thesis. It's crazy. These women were persecuted. Right. Uh, but again, we know from earlier in the movie that she thinks that he gave her that thesis. Yes. And then cut to them having sex. Yes. And in their blue velvet moment, she tells him to hit her. Mm-hmm. And he initially refuses. She accuses him of not loving her. Yes. Says, maybe I don't. Yes. She runs off to masturbate in the woods. 
like you do when you're cuckoo bananas. Real unsimulated Sh- Charlotte Gainsborough masturbating in the forest. Yep. Uh, good for her for being so comfortable with her body. I guess so. I, I don't think, uh, I think that would be hard for a lot of people to do. It, I would not do it. I wouldn't do it either. Yeah. But I have no. a very unimpressive penis. I just don't think that there's ever any reason for unsimulated sex acts in movies that are not pornographic. Uh, I just I just don't think it's necessary, and I think it's un, unreasonable to ask. Now, I have a different view of sex than some other people do. Yes. Maybe Charlotte Gainsborough is a very sex-positive person. I don't know anything about her. And she's like, yeah, this means nothing to me. Let's go and let's do it. But I, me personally, I think that that's a pretty... I tend to view that as a pretty sacred thing, and I don't think that it's necessary. To I would that. have a hard time... Uh, finding justification for unsimulated actual penis and vagina sex or right, uh, yeah. uh, whatever sort might occur. Mm-hmm. Masturbation is something that can be laden with so much symbolism and metaphor and meaning okay. that I could see putting that on film if it has a greater meaning. And the act I of will sex, say that I'm more willing to think about masturbation that way than I am copulation sex you can fake it well enough to get that meaning across and grand you can do that with masturbation too sure but the rawness of the naked human body yeah can, and the exposure and the vulnerability can mm-hmm. uh portray a lot sure i don't think you'll necessarily get that so much with close-up shot of penis and vagina agreed yeah he finds her and joins in slapping her a bit before they mm-hmm. go back to having sex at the base of a creepy tree which is then there's sort of a phase to where it's shown to have arms intertwined amongst the roots. Great shot. Yes. But here's where in my first watch I went, oh, this movie means nothing. This is the moment that broke you. It didn't break me. I was just like, oh, this is a hollow exercise in misogyny. (laughs) And normally, of the two of us, you are much more sensitive to, let's say, SJW topics. Yes, I'm very sensitive to that stuff. So, uh, with a lot of, especially genre and exploitation and stuff that is of the time, it is yeah. very easy for me to roll with it. Yeah, it is uh, it's much easier for you than me, yeah. Here, it just felt like so blatant that I was just like, oh, this means nothing. It's just, it's just about fucking women are evil and I'm sad. Yeah, I... Do you think this shot means something? I don't know. I, I, I am, I am... I understand why you thought it meant nothing. Yes. But I... I... There's a part... Again, he is so good at certain points. And this shot in particular is a great shot. Oh, it looks fantastic. I... There's a part of me that's like, he meant something by this. But I do... And I know that when I, again, I was reading the Wikipedia article. According to the Wikipedia article, which anybody can edit, so maybe this is complete bunk. We did not have a lot of time to research this movie. Um, he researched the psychology behind misogyny when making this movie. Mm-hmm. So maybe he was trying to make some other point with this. I don't know. But tell I, me how the image of arms intertwined uh sort of matched up as tree roots has anything to do with misogyny i don't know i i i i can't tell you that this means anything 
but I can't tell you that this means nothing either. I and don't. I, I don't know anything. And I will fully admit, yeah, that if I really sat down and thought about it, I could find meaning in this. And I'm sure plenty of people have found meaning in this. Sure, but it does not. But again, we talk about meeting movies more than halfway. We yeah. don't know. We we the point is, this is a very interesting looking shot. Yes, that doesn't seem to communicate anything of substance to either of us. Yes. Maybe if you or someone out there, you saw this scene and you burst into tears and this meant everything to you and you reconciled with your family afterwards, you reconciled with your pets, you cured world hunger, everything was good. If so, let us know, but this is not, this is not work, this didn't work for us. But yeah, I... uh... I don't see it. Uh, Nature and sex, and that's it. Throw in woman bad in there, and it's all the movie's themes. (laughs) Later, he shows she, the medical examiner's report. Well, she finds it. Okay. Yeah, she's going through some stuff, some paper that they're throwing in the fireplace, and she finds it, and she's like, what's this? And he says, it's a medical examiner's report. I didn't show it to you because you were upset. I didn't want to make things worse. And there was nothing in there that had any bearing on the death. Except. Except, Well, it doesn't have any bearing on the death. It It was just just a side note that there is a slight deformity in his feet. Mm -hmm. Then he shows she pictures where Nick has his shoes on the wrong feet. We get a flashback of what, for me was the most troubling scene where I can understand it. she puts the shoes on Nick's feet on the wrong feet and he just cries. He is crying while she, um, again, stone-facedly, like in the pictures we saw before, yeah. emotionlessly puts the shoes on. And she lies to Willem Dafoe and says that she must have just made a mistake one yeah. day. But we see that he, don't, he doesn't have just the one picture. There's multiple. Every picture of the child He's got the shoes on the wrong feet, and we see that she was doing it intentionally. And again, it's just reinforcing that she was bad all along. Yeah. Uh, She's just a bad, shitty person. She's abusive. She's nuts. Mm -hmm. It's as much as Lars von Trier says he sympathizes with... she. He relates more to she than he. Mm -hmm. She is the villain of the piece. Now, again, Lars von Trier is a fucked up person. True. I'm not just saying that because he's depressed. I'm saying that because he's a fucked up person who is also depressed. So it might be that she is a fucked up person in this movie just because Lars von Trier is a fucked up person. It's possible. And his moral code and his view of the world is so different from ours that he does consider her the hero in this movie. It's possible. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Sure. Do you think Lars von Trier is the art house Rob Zombie? <laughs> Do you see where I'm coming from? I see where you're coming from. I see where you're coming from, and I think we're going to leave that just the way we said it and move on. Okay. <laughs> he realizes that she's greatest fear is herself, and then she attacks him again. Does she say herself or himself? Because he, he says puts at the top of the pyramid, me. In quotes, yeah. re- meaning her greatest fear is me, referring to herself. Oh, I totally did not pick up on because, that. Because uh, she was abusive to Nick. Uh, mm-hmm. She's the one, she's the cuckoo one, so she's the source of all the problems. Right, the hysteria. Um, the lady parts. Yes. Uh, 
And she accuses him of leaving her. She she suddenly jumps him in a jump scare. She, yeah. He, he writes me in quotes, and then suddenly she's behind him in the shed, and she just fucking assaults him. And she, she knocks him to the ground, she rips off his pants and starts raping the shit out they of him. They briefly have sex before she grabs a bit of firewood and slams it down on his dick. Yeah, no, she, she, liter- she has enough sex with him to make sure he's erect, and then yeah. pounds... That shit. And here's another bit of what I feel is subtle misogyny in the film. Okay. We are about to see an extreme close-up of she mutilating herself. This this blow to the ding-dong does not do much to Willem Dafoe's penis. I mean, it it does something. It does something. Which we'll talk about in a second. Yes. But it doesn't, like... We don't see mutilation on his part. We see the penis afterwards, and it just looks normal. Yeah. It just looks like a normal penis that, no, nothing has happened yeah. to. Like, it's, 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 it's like at an angle, but sometimes yeah. that happens to penises. And They're at angles. One of the things that made me avoid this movie for so long is this, this mutilation moment. part. Because and I, was I don't like, know if you've heard, but dudes are very sensitive about their penises. Yes. And damage happening to them is one of our greatest fears. Yes. <laughs> I was like, that doesn't sound like a fun time. <laughs> that sounds uh, mildly traumatic. It's a very sensitive um, part of the human body. But this is barely a thing in the movie. Uh, she, I was shocked. Yeah. It, honestly. It's, it's, it's almost nothing. Yeah. Uh, except for what happens in this brief few frame sequence. He passes out. She yeah. jerks off his still erect penis and it ejaculates blood. Which is pretty gross. It is gross. This is one of the only scenes that made me go, kind of go, hey now. That was pretty gross. <laughs> you know, you can make a film without all this dirty stuff, Lars. <laughs> and then she reveals that she has been the serial killer mastermind jigsaw. <laughs> That's right. This entire time. This whole scene comes out of fucking nowhere. Even after the putting the shoes on the wrong feet with the kid. Yeah. This scene, she's suddenly Michael Myers. Yeah. Like, now out of fucking nowhere. Here's where it descends into pure horror. Yeah. And here's another interesting parallel with Deerskin, which also has a sudden... That's right, yes. Um, Ex- very... Except in Deerskin, it somehow felt more natural than it, this. It felt way more natural and... Uh, Deerskin is so tongue-in-cheek throughout most yes. of it, whereas this is all very sort of dour. Yeah. But, yeah, no, somehow, even though Deerskin was not a horror, even close to a horror movie before that scene, that just seemed like a natural progression of yeah. the story. And this, even though it's very much in keeping with the tone of the film, feels like it jumps out of fucking nowhere. This feels like Lars von Trier going, how do I symbolize pain? Through pain. <laughs> I'll show pain. What if people got hurt? <laughs> the feelings on the outside represent the feelings on the inside. So anyway, she drills a hole in Willem Dafoe's leg. Into his leg. <laughs> and attaches a grindstone. Yes. She then tosses the wrench under the cabin. Uh, I will say... Oh, bottomless throughout this entire scene. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, like like we even need to say it. Uh, attaching the grindstone to his leg, very gnarly. Very, very cool. gnarly. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, uh, very, very effective horror concept. Yeah. Um, I've never seen it done. No, it, it's it, it was great. It was a great horror bit. Yeah, like uh, I said, 
if <laughs> I I have seen Saw traps. I've seen all the traps from the Saw movies, even though I haven't seen the Saw movies, and they're all very silly. This is some egregious fucking body horror stuff. Because it is played very real, very straight. Yeah. Um, it, it's, yeah. Um, he wakes up in pain. Mm-hmm. He has to crawl on the ground because the grindstone's too heavy. It's too painful to walk upright. Right. Uh, he manages to pull himself into a foxhole, which we've seen a couple times throughout the movie. Again, okay, so this scene also did not make any sense to me because she leaves the shed. She yeah. just starts walking around bottomless out there, you know, as you do. Uh, and he suddenly, he wakes up and he starts like dragging this around. And immediately my question was, where do you think you're going? Like, where, where are you trying to get to a phone? What's, what's your strategy here? And then suddenly she's hunting him through the forest again, yeah. like Michael Myers being like, don't you leave me. How dare you fucking where leave are me? You? Where, where are, are you? you? And I'm like, okay, so now he needs to escape. But we didn't have that motivation for him to get away before. Well, I think his idea was just like, she's going to come back here. I don't want this abuse to continue. I should try to get away. Fair enough. And then he hides in a fox warren that she showed him. Yes. So, like, a place that you would think she would look. And she's just, like you said, she's full on Jack Torrance at this point. Oh, yeah. Lumbering around. Uh, if only Jack Nicholson had been pantsless during the climax of The Shining, just his <laughs> shriveled penis and balls with frostbite forming on him. Just a big icicle hanging off of yep. his dick. Uh, yeah, she's screaming for him. Inside the foxhole, he finds the last of the beggars, mm-hmm. a wounded crow. Mm-hmm. And the crow, crow is calling, alerts her, she, mm-hmm. so he kills it in a brutal be- bird-beating scene we would not see the likes of until The Lighthouse, also featuring <laughs> Willem Dafoe. Also featuring Willem Dafoe. <laughs> she finds him, despite his crow murder, mm-hmm. and unable to pull him out, she buries him. So here's where something uh, occurred to me. I realized one of the main motivations behind her she's character okay. is the fear of being abandoned. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason why she put she she men- makes mention several times throughout the movie that Nick was moving away from her in some way. Yes, and that Nick was learning to walk, getting out, and and walking around. So her solution was to cripple him, to Mm. disfigure his feet by putting the shoes on the wrong feet. Interesting. And when she starts to worry about Willem Dafoe leaving, leaving, she she, hobbles him. She hobbles him as well. She is terrified of people leaving her. And this fear of abandonment turns her into Jack Torrance somehow. I'm not saying it makes sense. I'm not saying it's good. But I, I suddenly realized... No, that's a this, wrinkle. This is the through line for her character. That's a wrinkle I did not see, yeah. and I, I think it's valid. I, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, I appreciate that. Sure. I, I'm, I'm fully willing to admit that I might be taking a extremely glib view of this movie. Sure. I, I, if you I see mean, more it in it than I the, do... It wouldn't be the first time that we've taken glib view of our yes. past films. But I, I will... And this is another thing where I think that... This is another place where Lars von Trier sees himself in her. I, if if I were to interpret this, I would say that it's possible that maybe this is the way he views his relationships, 
as a, a series of relationships where he puts a lot more of himself into it than the other person is willing to. And I can definitely see Lars von Trier's Lars von Trier being the hero of his own narrative. <laughs> well, aren't we all? And true. I mean, I mean that's kind of part of depression where you feel like a side character in your own story. Sure, sure. But yeah, so I, I, and and being just terrified of 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 everyone is everyone's going to leave me because I'm so worthless and yes. all this stuff, and seeing himself as kind of a, like a monster that just kind of, like, hobbles people and cripples people in order to keep them in his life. Well, you know, Lars, maybe you're not too far off the mark. Oh, goodness me. Might just be a shitty dude, Lars. (laughs) But once again, the chapter ends on a spooky animal. Yep. (laughs) And we go to chapter four, The Three Beggars. Finally, it's the end game of The Three Beggars. (laughs) We've seen them separate, now let's see them all together. Yep, yep. I guess it would be more their Infinity War. I hope... You know how uh, Disney likes to snatch up little indie directors mm-hmm. and turn them into blockbuster directors uh, with Marvel movies. Mm-hmm. Maybe eventually they'll run out of people and they'll have to go to like Lars von Trier <laughs> or um, uh, sure. David Cronenberg or David Cronenberg's son. I can't remember his name at the moment. Uh, yeah. Uh, Eustace Cronenberg. <laughs> I think it is. Gaylord Cronenberg. That's it. Gaylord Cronenberg. It's a very old-fashioned name. Stop laughing at it. I'm still waiting for David Lynch's superhero movie. Well, we almost got David Lynch's Return of the Jedi. I know. And by almost, I mean we completely missed that. Yeah. But it was a possibility. It was never going to happen. Uh, Uh, Later, she unburies him. I'm beginning to believe that she has borderline personality disorder. Oh, really? (laughs) Because her personality completely changes in between each scene. Well... She's either feeling guilty or she's just horny again. That is, yeah, that could be. She tells him, after she drags him back to the cabin, Mm -hmm. that she doesn't want to kill him yet. Because the three beggars aren't there yet. Right. When the beggars arrive, that's when someone dies. Yes. And uh, And this is where I wrote the note, I so don't care anymore, y'all can both go die. Yeah. (laughs) And here's where her evil, where her inherent evil is solidified. Mm-hmm. Because we flash back to Nick's death, and we see that she apparently watched him climb up on the table and fall out the window as she was getting railed by the Green Goblin. And this is where the fear of abandonment no longer makes sense. Yeah. Because, like, I, I just I just come up with all that, i written it down, I was so proud of myself, and then suddenly she's like, Oh, I'm okay if he leaves as long as he's dead. And Lars von Trier always gilding that lily. <laughs> As she's remembering this, she's masturbating. Yes. Yes. There is no other way I can see this other than that she is the most evil person where she is getting off while she thinks about the death of her child. Again, So I'm... evil and corrupt and such a malignant parody of motherhood and femininity. Mm-hmm. My devil's advocate position for this scene would be that she in seeing her child go there was a moment while she was having sex where she was like i don't want to stop having sex and also i would rather him be dead than him leave me and her that's why she looked so stone-faced at the funeral 
but then fell into a depressive episode because she realized what a monster she was. Oh no, I regret not saving my child. Womp womp. And all of the sex that she's been desperately trying to have is that she's trying to... She's trying to escape herself. She's trying to feel di- something different other than the misery of herself. Devil's advocate, your devil's advocate. Yeah. Uh, she's so evil that the sex she experienced while she watched her son die was so fucking good, it made her come so hard that she's desperately seeking that again. She's chasing that dragon of like, oh shit, yeah, baby's life ending while I get fucked. Yeah. <laughs> Can you think of any more reprehensible thing? Toddler death sex is always the best sex. Absolutely. That um, that is unfortunately an absolutely legitimate interpretation of this yeah. movie. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, so she asked him to hold her as she cuts off her own clitoris. Yes, and, and this, this is the is... scene that bothered me the most. I've never... I've seen... I have never seen uh, uh, a vaginal mutilation on film before. I have not either. I knew this was this coming. This was a new thing for me. I did not. This is one of the things I did not know was coming, and therefore did surprise me. It was upsetting. Yeah, no, it's. <laughs> this is the most extreme moment of the film. This is the moment that uh, my wife Kaylee came in to join me watching. Oh, wonderful! Because as it was happening, she was off doing her own thing, and she heard me going, "Oh, oh, oh, oh." And then she comes in and is like, what? And I was like, vaginal mutilation. And she was like, eh. <laughs> yeah, I also... And again, it, it very well could be because I knew it was coming. Sure. I knew it was coming, so I was prepared. My, le- my loins were girded. <laughs> but it it did not phase me that much. Like mm-hmm. I was like, yes, this is upsetting. This is gross. This is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But I've... Do you feel that imprint was almost worse, uh, more almost more difficult to watch, and how drawn, not even drawn out. At least the torture in that was extended. It wasn't. Th- this sequence is seconds. Mm-hmm. It happens, and then she runs off screaming. I think she doesn't. She well, yes, actually, she does. She runs off screaming, but then we cut back to Willem Dafoe, and she's in the corner, curled up with blood spurting out of her. Still, I will tell you what fazed me more than the actual mutilation mm-hmm. is just I don't know that I've ever seen female genitalia so up close. That is, yeah, I think that that's... was more shocking to me. Like, not shocking as like, oh my, I'm so offended. Right. I was just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. well, shit, you don't see this often. No, you don't. You don't see. Yeah, like like in a ma- in a big budget mainstream movie, you just don't see vaginas like. That. I was more fascinated by that, and not fascinated because I've never seen one. Haven't seen a lot. Um, <laughs> but it's just like. Well, just the curiosity of it. Right. It was just, it was an odd, I'll, I'll tell you what bothered me more, because like the actual mutilation part, it's obviously fake. Like it's, it's yeah. like they're not, they. Hold on. Char- Are you telling me Charlotte Gainsborough didn't really cut off her clitoris? Charlotte Gainsborough might be sex positive, but she's not, she's not going to go and, and cut off her clitoris for the movie. What here's. here's Daniel this- Day-Lewis 100% would have cut off his clitoris. <laughs> he would have. So the, the 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 scariest part was it was just already you're in new territory because the camera is 
it's a red camera right up next to her vagina. Yes. And she is taking the scariest, most rusty scissors in the world and pulling them right up next to it. And that that imagery, it, it's kind of like people who say the moment leading up to a kiss is better than the kiss itself. Yeah. It's like the moment leading up to the vaginal mutilation was way more upsetting than the actual vaginal mutilation. Yeah, like I said, it's seconds. Yeah. And I, I sort of... And I will, I will say, yes, obviously, Imprint bothered me way more. Yes. Because I'm not screaming right now, and I think I did scream during that episode. Yes. <laughs> the, the upsetting content of this movie makes up probably less than 1% of the runtime. And so much of Imprint is that upsetting yes. content. But still, again, it happens so quickly. The actual extreme content in this movie, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's plenty other to be bothered by the relation, the dynamics between he and she, uh, whatever else, the the CGI animals and their various fucked upness. Yeah. But the actual extreme content where it's it's like... This would get it put on the video nasty list in Britain. Right. Um, is very limited and quick. It's kind of like the exorcism scene in The Exorcist. The violence in this movie is all anyone ever talks about when they talk about this movie. They're like, yeah. you want to see a movie where Willem Dafoe's dick gets smashed? Which is fucking stupid because they should be talking about how fucking beautiful it is. Yeah. And if it's this like, movie if has it takes one... up so little time. Yeah. Where most of... Same thing with the exorcism. The everyone, all anyone talks about is the exorcism. The exorcism is like five minutes at the end of the movie. Yeah, most of the movie is just a lot of build up and. Uh, it's your typical seventies movie. One of the scariest MRI scenes I've ever seen. Uh, so yeah, it's it's, uh, and that's all the scary stuff in the exorcism. Yeah. In the exorcist is all the stuff leading up to the exorcism scene. Uh, the exorcism scene is like out of a comic book. She wanders off. Presumably to do more evil shit oh, or okay. more crazy we shit. Missed, we missed something in here. At some point in here, I do I, I stupidly did not write down who says it and when. But at some point, the most misogynist moment of the film for me, weirdly enough, someone said the line, "A crying woman is a scheming woman." <laughs> Charlotte Gainsborough says that. Of course she does. And I just about like launched myself through the TV screen. Yeah. <laughs> like there was something about that line was the line crosser for me. No, I know what you mean, because yeah. I didn't write it down myself, but I was like, that's some Tommy Wiseau personal issues with women shit. Like, like, that was when I was like, up until that point, I was like, okay, so maybe this is like an expression of of his yeah. deep-seated feelings, and he relates to her more than to him. And then she said that, and I was like, okay, fuck you, Lars. If anyone <laughs> wants to deflect my uh, accusations of misogyny against any of the rest of the film... Mm-hmm. I would be willing to listen. Yeah. That moment was clearly just Lars von Trier being like, yeah, bitches, you know. But yeah, she wanders off, presumably to do more crazy shit. She, he regains consciousness and sees the three beggars constellation from the star map we saw earlier. Yes. And he mumbles that there is no such constellation. And here's where I finally had to take umbrage with what was coming out of Willem Dafoe's mouth. <laughs> All constellations are just dots and lines. It doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> sure, like, none of the constellations look like what they're fucking supposed to be. No, none of them do. The, yeah. the, the closest is, like, Orion's belt. It, it, it's a straight line, so yeah. you could say that's a belt. 
I, anything can be a fucking constellation. Anything. Like, can be, when just, I was a, when I was a kid, I used to make my own constellations. I used to. I used my favorite one was one of the red uh, Lightspeed Rescue Power Ranger kicking Diabolico. Great. Yeah. A hailstorm starts, <laughs> which she seems to cause because she mentions earlier that a group of women were accused of being able to cause hailstorms. Yes. Yes. She's she's deliberately tying her own identity as a woman back to these exceedingly misogynistic middle ages ideals of, of, uh, women being, uh, evil in some way and, and being full of witchcraft and all this shit. And then after the hailstorm starts, a deer is in the house. <laughs> what wacky fun. It's like an episode of full house. Oh, Michelle brought a deer in the house. <laughs> And now a fox, oh man. Oh man. Where's the crow? It's under a floorboard with the wrench. With the wrench. The animals park themselves by she's passed out body. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she's back in the house now. Yep. And it's just like the uh, animal party that baby Jesus had at his birth. <laughs> Willem Dafoe finally gets the wrench, so he finally gets that He that gets the grindstone off. off and Or he's trying to before she stabs him with some scissors. Her clit right. scissors. Her clit scissors. So she's still trying to still still somewhat sexual act. So or, or he, at least a very cloudy day with a lot of desolate trees. Uh, he eventually does manage to get the grindstone off. Yes. But now he finally snaps. Yes. You've pushed a good man too far. <laughs> or at least... It's uh, Lars von Trier's falling down. No more Mr. Caring, patient, loving Goodman. I would absolutely watch a remake of Falling Down starring Willem Dafoe. Oh my god, who wouldn't? Oh my god, that'd be amazing. But anyway. Um, time for Batman! Yeah! Uh, he strangles her to death and burns her body, much like the women accused of being witches. I will say... What symbolism! What, what symbolism. parallels? I will say, one of the more... Again, going along with all the other imagery in this movie, one of the more visceral strangulations I've ever seen. There's, like, this weird moment where his thumbs, like, they don't break the skin, but they, like, dig into the flesh oh, of her Oh, he crushes neck. her windpipe. He just, like, legitimately, it it actually looks, I don't know if they built a fake throat. I but hope like, so. But, like, it really looks like some actual damage was done. Yeah, no. And he, it is a very convincing effect, whatever the fuck they did. He visibly crushes her windpipe. Uh, which is a detail I appreciate because if you've ever yes. uh, choked a woman sexually, Billy, <laughs> they don't like it when you put the thumb over the windpipe. I would imagine um, they probably don't. That's a no-no. That's a no-no. So uh, it's good. It's good to show. It's good that a movie is showing the difference between responsible <laughs> sexual choking and violent murderous choking. <laughs> Our next caller is having a little bit of trouble with uh, hitting his wife in bed. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, caller. You're on with a thousand wise uh, of weird. As he hobbles off, we get another amazing shot. This time he's in the dream landscape. Yes. Moving as if through water, the dark and ugly landscape around him slowly turning into pale, seemingly dead bodies. Yes. What does it mean? Probably nothing. Probably nothing. It's it's almost it symbolizes as if, dead people. It's almost as if like there's some implication that there have been many who have taken this journey before, and are be, are left behind in the forest. That the forest is full of women and men who have died out here in similar circumstances. But I'm not sure what the fuck that has to do with anything. I don't think there's an, much, if any, evidence in the film to support that. 
Unless yeah. it's like going through history of like I don't know. Uh, good men push too far till they have to murder their nymphomaniac wives. But this is functionally the end of the movie, yes. except for the epilogue, right? Where once again we are in black and white, filmed very beautifully, not as beautifully as the opening shot because a child isn't being murdered, right? Um, but the same opera aria is being played, uh, and he makes his way out of the forest. He stops to eat some berries. As he's having berry time, <laughs> he sees his old friends, the three beggars, and they're force ghosts now. <laughs> And one of them is played by Hayden Christensen. Although in the theatrical release, it was not. <laughs> it was not Hayden Christensen. Um, yeah, but, but in, they're in they're the, all translucent. In the, in the only all... version that you can find available is Hayden yes. Christensen. It's Hayden Christensen, Alec Guinness, and Frank Oz. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, Frank Oz obviously playing the fox. Right. Uh, um, obviously. 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 Um, they're all translucent. They're very ethereal. Mm-hmm. And then a parade of old timey women come from out of the depths of the forest. And walk past he. All without faces. All blurred faces. And presumably the understanding is that these are women throughout the epochs of history who have been killed by men and they are proceeding to the funeral of their sister, maybe? Maybe. I don't know. I couldn't tell if they were walking past him or if they were swarming on him to kill him. Well, they walk past him. They walk past him? Okay. Okay. I but I couldn't tell if they were moving towards the cabin, away from the cabin. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I I just I was so mad when I got done with this movie because I had I had followed it along. I had given it. I feel like maybe I'm being unfair. More of a chance than you had, and I had tried so hard. And at the end of this movie, I came away with a lot of nothing except. Man, is Lars von Trier miserable, and man, is he just exploring how miserable he feels and how right he is to feel miserable in this movie. Here's where I think we are at, and this podcast is also about your journey into my world. This is, yeah, absolutely. I am more used to, in my hunt for the weird, accepting the faults, because I still recommend this movie. Uh, like, that's true. That's that's I, the ironic end of this is that is like I can I seem to have been arguing for the movie this entire time when I didn't recommend it yeah. and you I I've been hating on it but you do recommend it. You you sort of learn to be like okay, here's the choice bits. Mm-hmm. The rest of this doesn't work. And this is a lot of watching especially like exploitation where sure. you're going to see a lot of trash, you're going to see a lot of filler, but you pick out the bits that stick out and be like this is what makes the movie worthwhile. Yeah. Here's what doesn't. And now you need to do a balancing act. There's such beautiful imagery in this film that I think if that is something that interests you, it would be uh, negligent to avoid this film. Okay. Appreciate the beauty of this film. Don't appreciate the message or any possible meaning. Don't look for depth necessarily. Just appreciate that someone has created beautiful imagery. Sure. Um. Would I like it, it's when I say a film is beautiful, I am almost always referring to visual stylings. You're talking about aesthetics, not content, not message, not meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why this movie is worthwhile, right? Um, we're talking, you're talking about literally what you can see yes. on the screen, and I'm at a stage mm-hmm. where like that is enough for me. Gotcha. It, I, I can, I can laugh at the rest, I can say that the rest is empty. But I can still go like, 
hey. Yeah. This is... Uh, sometimes I view myself as, uh, to tie it in, a crow. Okay. Crows are attracted to shiny things. You can even... <laughs> You can even train them to bring you coins. Right, yeah. We are the crows. We are going to bring you the shiny things. We're going to find the odd, the beautiful out of the junk. Mm-hmm. And sometimes a coin's going to have a bit of dirt on it. Yeah. Or but you can, he'll have a picture of a racist on it. Yes. Yeah. That fucking weed on the wheat penny. Racist ass <laughs> wheat. Um, but yeah, like there's... I, I, I can understand you're why you're disappointed, but I yeah. think as we continue this journey, you will shift from that to be like, there was good in this. Yeah. As I watch more garbage, <laughs> I'm going to realize how, va- it's like stripping uh, an old laptop for like the cadmium inside or whatever. <laughs> you find so you- the value inside the unvaluable. I think, I think I can, I can, I can appreciate that. I, 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 I can't get beyond it's it's difficult for me to get beyond what I feel to be again very masturbatory art is not necessary I've, I've said this repeatedly art does not necessarily have to be uh positive no. it does not necessarily have to be good for you sometimes art can just be miserable it can and, and, and this... sometimes characters can be miserable without reflecting the values of the creator. Yes. I often mean, that is the case. Often that is the case. Like, I'm not saying that uh, Raging Bull, it, the, the character of Jake LaMotta, is a um, reflection of Martin Scorsese. No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, he's but this probably, is a much more personal film than Raging Bull. No, like, like we, 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 again, we didn't have a lot of research that we did, but we didn't enough to know that Lars von Trier... Uh, did make this movie based on a certain headspace he was in at yeah. the time. And I just can't get behind the headspace that he made this movie in. And I, it feels, every time I say that, it feels like I am criticizing him for being depressed, which I do not ever want to no, do No, no. I don't want to criticize someone for being sad. And definitely if... And for if having clinical depression. Like, if, that's a thing that no one can control. If you're depressed and you have a creative outlet, whatever that may be, uh, make use of that. Absolutely. It's just that I feel that... There's you, an, you I have, have to judge a movie... On more than the intentions of the creator. Good. Yeah. Okay. Good point. And I think I think that uh, in the end, there is not much in this movie in terms of substance. Exactly. That uh, goes beyond him just getting his feelings out. Yes. And I think it. It. I. I hope that it did him good to do this. From what I understand, I don't think so because he made two more movies as part of his <laughs> depression trilogy. Apparently, it didn't. If it did serve that purpose, it I, I, I would I would feel good yeah. about its existence. But you are absolutely correct. This movie on an on a purely aesthetic level has some wonderful shots. It has some amazing acting. Mm-hmm. And it yeah, even has some fantastic gore. Yeah. Uh, which we do enjoy here. Absolutely. Uh so not um, and uh, our enjoyment of gore, at least I'm and I feel you feel the same way. Yeah, is the technical aspect not the spectacle? No, we're, we're it's not. It's not so much the sort of. It's like oh yeah, clit got cut off. It's like no, holy no. shit, they did a clit cutting off effect. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely more that. Like I I don't I don't like the idea of anyone's clip being cut off. I don't no, like absolutely I don't not. like the idea of anyone's head being cut off. No. Like, it, when I see someone in a movie getting their head cut off and it's a really good effect, I really enjoy that because it's it's technically fantastic. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say about Lars von Trier's masterpiece, Antichrist? Uh, I think it's going to be a while before we watch another Lars von Trier movie. Uh, probably. I, I, I don't know what other one I would want to watch. I want to see At least Mel- for this show. I would like to see Melancholia. Melancholia. I, I don't really know if I would see. do it for this show, but uh, I would like to see it. I, I can't would... imagine that I would watch it outside of this show. <laughs> I, I've been, Dancer in the Dark is another one I've avoided because it sounds so bleak and so depressing. But after Antichrist was like fucking child's play, maybe I'll, <laughs> maybe we've maybe been I'll check overestimating that out. Estimating the effect of Lars von Trier on our psyche, or maybe the next time we watch one, we'll come in here and we'll be both be like, "You want to form a suicide pact?" Maybe. Uh, thank you for listening. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye. Bye.